Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In two oral arguments this week, the Supreme Court struggled to determine when social media companies can be held responsible for aiding terrorism. At risk was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the controversial law that protects online companies from being sued over the comments, ads, pictures and videos on their platforms. Congress has been unsuccessful in efforts to reform Section 230, and the Supreme Court is being asked to step into the controversy and change the status quo, something most of the justices seemed reluctant to do. Here are Justices Elena Kagan and Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Congress uh, drafted a broad text, uh, and that text has been uh, unanimously read by courts of appeals over the years to provide protection in this sort of situation, and that you now want to uh, challenge that consensus. In the first case argued on Wednesday, the family of a U.S. citizen killed by Islamic State in a 2015 Paris attack argued that Google should be held liable for software algorithms that recommended terrorist videos to YouTube users. But in the first question, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that companies can't be sued if their recommendation algorithms are neutral about the kind of content they promote. The same algorithm to present cooking videos to people who are interested in cooking uh, and uh, ISIS videos to people who are interested in ISIS, uh, racing videos to people who are interested in racing, then I think you're going to have to explain more clearly, if it's neutral in that way, how your claim uh, uh, is set apart from that. Joining me is Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. Before the oral arguments this week, there was a lot of gloom and doom concerns about the future of Section 230. Do you think the cases sort of fizzled out and the concerns are not as great anymore? I was certainly one of the people who was spreading doom and gloom. Um, I I was and remain fearful about the future of the Internet. I do think that the oral arguments expose just how weak the cases are, that at the core they aren't meritorious and they never were. And to be clear, lots of other courts have said that. It was only the Ninth Circuit that opened up the door to these cases that all the other judges had shut down. And I think that the justices were more on the side of the judges who had rejected these cases 
in the beginning than the end. So I think that seeing how weak the cases are gives us some comfort that the justices are going to reach a good conclusion. However, they're going to do so in a way that I still fear is going to be a strategic loss for the Internet. Before we get to that, let's discuss the plaintiff targeting the algorithms used by YouTube. The first question from Clarence Thomas was that the algorithm is neutral, so, you know, show us your case here. Oh, they definitely got the point that the plaintiffs are trying to ask social media services to perhaps be something that they're not. And that troubled them, and that gave them some pause. They recognized both the speech implications of changing the social media services algorithms, and they also recognized the potential economic consequences, that there's a lot of businesses that are built on the premise that they can decide what's fit for their audience or not. So I think that the justices recognized the big strategic issues in the case, and it was great to hear Justice Thomas bring that up as the very first question. It set the tone for the rest of the oral arguments that we need the plaintiff to be very specific why they think liability should be imposed here. And in the Gonzalez case, I honestly think they never met that challenge. Across the ideological spectrum, they seem to have problems with the plaintiff's arguments, even saying, you know, I'm confused. I'm so confused. Several of the justices said that it should be Congress who changes Section 230. So I'm wondering why they even took the case. It's a great question and one that has vexed me and I think many others from the moment that the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. This wasn't the right case for the Supreme Court to take to understand Section 230. I felt that was obvious even from the request to the Supreme Court to hear it. And I have to feel like whoever voted in favor of hearing these cases kind of regretted it, that they thought the cases were going to be a better vehicle for judicial analysis than they ended up being. So I don't exactly know why they took the cases. That was always a mystery. And I think that that got exposed during the oral arguments, that this was not the right case for the court to really dig into some hard questions. Give us some background on these cases. These two cases were part of actually a larger litigation enterprise that was initiated with about 20 lawsuits filed across the country on behalf of victims of terrorist attacks, all claiming that social media services should be held accountable for their role in those terrorist attacks. Those lawsuits have uniformly failed across the country, except for the one exception in the Ninth Circuit that led to this appeal. And it's so heartbreaking because on the one hand, everyone is sympathetic to the victims. All of them want to see justice for the victims and efforts taken to curb terrorism. But it was unfortunate that they chose these defendants. These are not the right defendants. This is not the right way to curb terrorism or to provide justice for the victims of terrorist attacks. And so the courts have have been clear about that. The plaintiffs reached too far in the list of possible defendants. And and I felt like that message really came through at the Supreme Court. They understood that there are trade-offs that need to be made in any decision about speech policy online, and that they're not the right ones to make that decision. Congress is. And that if they overweight the concerns of the victims here, they're going to create other problems for people who are not in court. And those people also have interests that need to be considered. So you said that even if the justices dismiss the plaintiff's claims here, you're worried about how they come to that decision. Yeah, I am. So the court usually will write an opinion that says, here's who wins, and here's why they win. And in a clean opinion, they will say in very few words, 
these are the elements of the test. The plaintiffs or the defense met the right elements. That resolves the case. Case over. But the more modern trend in the Supreme Court has been to say more than they have to. And they start musing or speculating or caveating their statements. So it would be easy for them to say something like, Google wins because of Section 230. And if they stop right there, that could actually be an okay opinion. But what they're likely to do is then say, because of the following facts, and if those facts were different, we might reach a different outcome. Well, as you can imagine, every single plaintiff is going to pick up on the caveat and say, well, I think I can make a claim where I can allege the facts that they said might make a difference. And so we're going to just initiate this huge groundswell of new litigation to explore any caveat or qualification the Supreme Court puts in. And I don't think they can help themselves to do that. (laughs) Let's talk about the Twitter case for a moment. That was not about Section 230. That was about the boundaries of the federal anti-terrorism law. You heard a lot about aiding and abetting, as you did in the Google case. Correct. Um, And just to be clear, so the Gonzalez case involves Section 230, which is a defense immunity from liability that covers a wide range of potential claims. The Twitter case only involved the Anti-Terrorism Act, one of the many possible claims that might be covered by Section 230. That's why there's been so much interest in the Gonzalez case over the Twitter case, because of the fact that the Gonzalez case could change the law across hundreds or thousands of other laws. Now, in the Anti-Terrorism Terrorism Act, the question is, what constitutes aiding and abetting a terrorist organization? And that kind of inquiry is exactly the kind of thing that Section 230 has mooted in the past. Plaintiffs have alleged that they could get around Section 230 in other legal doctrines by saying, I'm not suing them because they were the bad actor. I'm suing them because they helped the bad actor. And Section 230 simply says you can't do that. So we haven't seen the kind of cases like the oral arguments we heard in the Twitter case because because of the fact that Section 230 has made those inquiries moot. So every plaintiff can allege that social media or other websites help some bad actor. That's the whole nature of talking to each other online. And Section 230 has taken that away. When we open up that door and look at it, like we did with the Twitter case, the justices don't know what to do. That's just judicial anarchy. Eric, so Section 230 is a defense that Google raised in the Gonzalez case on Tuesday. Why didn't Twitter raise it in the case on Wednesday? So my understanding is that the court chose to decide the case on the Anti-Terrorism Act grounds only, which is the court's prerogative. They don't have to rule on every single basis on which the the plaintiff might lose. And so my understanding is that that Section 230 could, in fact, be in play in the case if the case uh, is still open. It's just that the judge put the Anti-Terrorism Act inquiry first. So in the Twitter case, there were lots of hypotheticals banks and restaurants that serve terrorists, people who give guns to known criminals. And Justice Alito said, let's say J. Edgar Hoover tells Bell Telephone Company that Dutch Schultz is a gangster and he's using his phone to carry out mob activities. The phone company says we don't deprive people of service based on that. That makes him an aider and a better. He was expecting, I think, a different response from the lawyer. The aiding and abetting question is just, you know, a morass of confusion and ambiguity. And in particular, I didn't love uh, the hypotheticals where 
uh, law enforcement is telling a service that the, one of their customers is doing illegal activity. Because as we know, law enforcement isn't always credible on that front. And sometimes they can use or weaponize their status to achieve things that the law wouldn't otherwise permit them. And while that happens sometime in the U.S., that happens all the time in some other countries. And so treating the government source as an authoritative provider of identifying a criminal or a terrorist or a bad actor is actually just a road to ruin. Um, and so I think the correct answer should be that we can't rely on the government's claims alone. However, if the court has adjudicated that someone is a criminal or a terrorist, maybe we'd feel differently. Did the more liberal justices seem to be more open to the idea that Twitter should bear some responsibility for indirectly supporting ISIS? I didn't get a clear partisan divide on any of the oral arguments. It really did seem that each justice was in their own space. And so I think that a lot of the speech-related cases basically put the partisan alignments in a blender. There are a lot of conflicting considerations pointing in different directions. So I didn't see the a partisan divide, obviously. Could the justices use the Twitter case as a potential off-ramp to sidestep any tricky Section 230 issues? Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested that in the Google arguments on Tuesday. So they're both relying on the same aiding and abetting theory. So if you lose tomorrow, do we even have to reach the Section 230 question here? Would you concede that you would lose on that ground here? So if the Supreme Court decides that social media companies can't be held responsible for aiding and abetting terrorism in the Twitter case, the justices could opt not to decide whether Section 230 protects the online companies from those claims. Yeah, that is a possibility for the court to decide that the decision in Twitter could affect the decision in the Gonzalez case. I don't know if they want to do that. They've already geared up to hear the cases and do all the analysis, and then they would be basically putting all that work into the garbage. So I would be surprised if they want to go that route. But on the other hand, I could see why they would choose to do that, because in the end, they know that whatever they say about Section 2 there is going to have huge consequences. And if they feel like they're not ready to pine upon it. They do have that potential exit round. So listening to the arguments, your best guess is that the justices are going to rule against both the plaintiffs. No, I don't really have a prediction about the Twitter case. It was just too confusing um, to see where all the justices stood, and I, I don't have a prediction. And especially in cases like that, where they're trying to figure out what is the culpable mental state of a defendant, there's so many considerations that uh, I don't know that the oral argument questions uh, really preview where the justices stand. They may be stress-testing alternative arguments. They may be making um, uh, statements to their peers. They may be trying to figure out how they're going to keep a coherent line the next time the culpable mental state issue comes up, because it comes up all the time in the Supreme Court. That's like a standard issue for them to deal with, and they want to try and be coherent. Um, I do think that uh, Google is likely to prevail in the Gonzalez case. I just did not hear enough support for the uh, plaintiff's arguments. But even in that case, depending on how the court phrases the opinion, I still am not sure that Google will get a, a net strategic win. They might get the votes, but the opinion might take it all back. And just to be clear, these cases are just about whether or not the suits can go forward. So even if the court, let's say, said, okay, the Twitter suit can go forward, 
that would still have to go to trial and they would still have to prove that. Yes, but that actually sidesteps one of the primary battles taking place in these cases. Whether a judge can provide the early off-ramp that Section 230 is best known for, or if they have to spend more money to persuade a judge that uh, they should prevail. And so having to defend a case in court uh, over the course of the standard litigation process is a strategic loss in, in many circumstances for defendants. They simply don't want to spend the time or money that way, and they'll do a lot to avoid having to do that. So even if Google or Twitter could prevail at some later stage in the case, if they can't prevail early, it might not matter. They might, it might change their decision-making just having to defend the case that far. Thanks so much for those insights, Eric. That's Professor Eric Goldman of the Santa Clara University School of Law. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Give You Up was not only a huge hit for Rick Astley in 1987, its popularity has been revived with the Rick Roll internet memes. So it's no surprise that rapper Young Gravy used part of that song in his 2022 breakout hit, Betty Get Money. Did that sound to you like it was Rick Astley who was singing? Well, Astley says it's a deliberate and nearly indistinguishable imitation of his voice, and he's suing Young Gravy for stealing his voice. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, Young Gravy, whose real name is Matthew Wari, did get the rights to use the music and lyrics from Never Gonna Give You Up. So what's the problem here? So the problem with the legal approach Young Gravy or his lawyers took is that they obtained what is known as a mechanical rights license, which is a license with respect to the copyright 
in the uh, music and the lyrics. What they did not do was obtain a master license, which is a license to the copyright in the actual recording of the song. So they were licensed up to go out and do a cover using the music and lyrics of the 1987 song, but they were not licensed to actually play the 1987 recording. And the mistake arguably made by Young Gravy is to set out to purposefully imitate the voice of Rick Astley from the song Never Gonna Give You Up. And that is what this lawsuit is all about. Not about the copyrights, but about what in California is known as a violation of the right of publicity for using somebody else's identity. Have you heard this kind of you stole my voice claim before? Believe it or not, June, this is not an unusual cause of action in the courts. There are at least two cases I know of. In the Ninth Circuit, there's a 1988 case by Bette Midler. There's a 1992 case by Tom Waits. Going back further in time, Nancy Sinatra sued Goodyear in 1970 over her These Boots Are Made for Walking song. And even further back in time, 1962, Burt Lair, the actor who portrayed the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz and did a lot of other great acting work, sued for the use of his voice back in 1962. So believe it or not, this is not the first time someone has dreamed up a cause of action relating to the imitation of someone else's voice. I wonder if Young Gravy knew what the limits of the rights he had purchased because he said at one point, we had a different singer and instruments, but it was all really close because it makes it easier legally. So I don't know what advice he got from his lawyers. I don't even know to what extent that he consulted his lawyers. The problem practicing lawyers like myself face in this area with artists is that often they don't explain (laughs) the entirety of the project that they're setting out upon. They will say, oh, I want to do a cover of Rick Astley's song, Never Going to Give You Up, and don't give you any other information. So I'm not in a position to criticize the lawyers or to even criticize Young Gravy here. The problem with a project like this is both the lawyers and the artists and the producers have to sit down and really explore all the possible outcomes. And it doesn't seem like that happened here. So does Astley have a good case? So, June, we've talked enough about different lawsuits that, you know, that <laughs> I'm reluctant to ever say. I know, I uh, heard the that sign. one party's going to win or lose or give odds. I'm reminded of the famous episode back during the Apollo program when Apollo 13 had its disastrous incident and was on the way back to Earth. And President Nixon called the flight director and asked him, what are the chances of these guys getting back alive? And demanded that he actually put odds on it. You just can't do that either in space missions or lawsuits. (laughs) And so I'm going to refrain from giving you some sort of a set of odds here. Maybe Las Vegas can do that for you. But I will say this, on its face, this is a colorable claim that Rick Astley has brought. On the other side of the ledger, there are some strong defenses to be made here by Young Gravy. And so to a certain extent, this will be an interesting case to follow to see how the court works out both a strong and interesting cause of action versus some pretty strong defenses. So let's talk about some of the defenses that Young Gravy may have. Fair use, which we've discussed a lot. 
So a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court of California, and remember, this lawsuit is brought in the California state court system. It's not a federal lawsuit. And so the decisions from the California Supreme Court apply. And back in 2001, the California Supreme Court, in a case that involved the same sort of right of publicity claim, incorporated into California state law right of publicity a transformative use defense, which it stole out of the copyright cases. And transformative use is an element of a fair use defense, but it's not the complete fair use defense. And the Supreme Court of California saw fit just to pull out this one part of the copyright fair use defense, the transformative use element. And that is available to Young Gravy here in this lawsuit. The problem I have with that defense is not quite sure how the song that Young Gravy did, Betty Get Money, uh, transforms the Rick Astley song, Never Gonna Give You Up. I don't consider it to be a parody. Indeed, Young Gravy said a number of things prior to the lawsuit in which he praised the song and referred to it as being, I think, iconic or just famous and, and generally was positive about it, whereas a parody is a criticism. It makes fun of a work by way of criticizing it, typically to make some sort of social commentary. And I don't think that's what's going on here. And so that's going to be a challenging defense for Young Gravy to make in this lawsuit. So what defenses might he have? So amongst the other defenses are just the straight-up sort of First Amendment freedom of speech defense. The Ninth Circuit has said if a use has some sort of informative or cultural usefulness, then it's immune from this sort of state court tort challenge. Not sure that the informative prong has anything to do with it. But I think an argument could be made that they're using this in purely an entertainment manner. So they're not trying to sell a product using Rick Astley's song. They're simply trying to entertain the public. And this is a really important distinction here, because in the Bette Midler case, Ford Motor Company had used a person imitating her voice to sell Ford cars. And she brought a lawsuit and claimed that they couldn't do that, that it was a violation of her right of publicity. And the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, she's right. They are trying to sell a product, a motor car, using her iconic and recognizable voice. And so here, this is not being used by Young Gravy in the sense of trying to sell a product. Rather, it's entertainment. Most of the successful right of publicity cases come in the context of advertising whether it be a commercial on television or radio or a print ad of some sort. It's typically advertising trying to sell a product or service. And this is a song. And so I think that there is an argument to be made by Young Gravy that the First Amendment protects him in this context. Are the circuit courts united on these issues? So there have been very little of this sort of lawsuit outside of the Ninth Circuit. So it is it's hard to explain or discuss whether or not there's some sort of difference amongst the circuit courts. Now, in the Second Circuit, I think they would just instinctively jump to the Rogers v. Grimaldi test, which we've talked about before, which provides protection to the use of somebody else's trademark in connection with expressive works. Not sure that that would apply here. I mean, Young Gravy may well make that defense, but this is not that classic use of a trademark 
And in particular, the Ninth Circuit has distinguished these voice imitation cases from copyright and trademark. They've said things along the lines of, uh, your voice is part of your identity. It's like your name. It's like your persona. And when somebody else takes it, it's not the same as taking authorship of a work or a trademark. It is something that is so uniquely personal that it deserves and receives at common law special protection in the form of this tort called a right of publicity. So I'm not sure that the Rogers v. Grimaldi test would apply here, um, although you might see it get made. Indeed, I think the traditional trademark sort of defenses, nominative fair use, for example, are unlikely to apply because the Ninth Circuit, at least, has said, you know, rights of publicity cases, whether it's name, likeness, image, voice, they're all unique to that individual's identity, and therefore they stand separate and apart from the various federal causes of action. Terry, does it matter how much this clip sounds like Rick Astley? I think it does. And I played the video of the song, which may be slightly different than the actual song, um, the recording. Um, but I played it, and I had trouble associating the alleged imitation of Rick Astley's voice with his actual original song, Never Gonna Give You Up. I, I just didn't see it. Now, that may be me, maybe my personal impression, reaction to the song, and that'll be a factual issue for a jury to decide. And that's important here, because as a defendant, you want to get rid of these cases early on, either at motion to dismiss stage or summary judgment. You really don't want to let the case go to the jury, because unusual and challenging things can happen when the case gets to the jury. We saw this in the Blurred Lines case, where the Marvin Gaye estate sued Farrell and a number of other people over the song Blurred Lines and alleged copyright infringement. And the jury returned a verdict in favor of the plaintiff finding copyright infringement and I think awarding over $4 million in damages, even though I struggled to see the substantial similarity between the two songs. And that's why you don't want to let these cases get to jury. And the interesting thing here, June, is that the lawyer for the Marvin Gaye estate and heirs who brought the Blurred Lines case, uh, a gentleman by the name of Richard Bush, is the lawyer for Rick Astley in this lawsuit. That should prove interesting. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.